Hi everyone, we're going to be reading from Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. Um, it's on page 816 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. I'll give you a moment to open up. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He came to her, oh, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, Emily, so much for reading. I'm going to ask you to pray as we come and think about God's word. Uh, Remember, it is God's word, uh, and so God speaks through his word, and we want to submit ourselves to him. Now, Father, we thank you for the gift that you the eternal, the almighty God, have spoken and through your scriptures you continue to speak. Your scriptures point to the living word, the Lord Jesus, and we long to grow to know him better. We pray that you'll help us tonight to work hard to understand the passage and that your spirit would find the soil of our hearts, receptive to your word, that may be implanted and indeed produce fruit. 
We thank you for the privilege we have of listening, but we also acknowledge the responsibility we have as we do listen. Amen. When I began pastoring uh, at Toronto Baptist Church, which I was there for almost 20 years, uh, when I went there, there was a family with similar aged children to ours. We became friends, good friends, uh, and then towards our, the end of our time there, Julie, who was the, the wife and the mother, was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was difficult for her, difficult physically, emotionally. It was difficult for her family. My wife, Elizabeth, and another lady uh, began meeting with her every week. They would go around and uh, just talk to support, read some of the Bible, and they had a book on the Psalms that they were reading together. I prayed with and for Julie often, and yet I found it difficult to pray for her healing directly. One day Julie asked me, why? Why don't you pray for me to be healed? I explained that I often feel the weight of expectation, that people long for the pastor to pray for healing, and yet I feel sometimes, and I fear sometimes, for praying for that, I may be offering false hope, because God may or may not heal. Plus, I said, as I read through the Bible, and especially the letters, the apostles' letters in the New Testament, rarely do I find the apostles praying for healing. Instead, what I find is them praying for perseverance and for endurance and for faithfulness, that they would grow in their character more than praying for healing. So I said to Julie, I find it more authentic to ask God to heal if he knows that's the best, but to strengthen Julie and remind her that God is faithful and good. He is present and he gives his promises. After we moved to Sydney, Liz went back every week. She was a piano teacher at the time. She went back to teach some people piano, but she kept meeting with Julie. Eventually, the cancer could not be contained. Uh, she was declining. She went to hospital. And as it turned out, it was a couple of days before she died. We went to visit her. And she, she thanked me. She thanked me for teaching the Bible and laying foundations that enabled her to grow in her depth and appreciation of God as her life was ending. I share that story because I still find it challenging to pray specifically for healing for people as something isolated from growing in Christ. Today we are continuing a series, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, and the focus is on healing. And when we talk about healing, I'm mindful that there will be people here who have prayed for healing who have longed for healing, maybe not for themselves, but for their friends or for their family. 
and they haven't received it. Disillusionment, disappointment, anger, devastation. Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote this book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, in her chapter deals with several women in the New Testament and how Jesus healed them. But I want to focus on one section, the section that Emily read out for us. And I want to acknowledge that uh, a gentleman called Don Carson has been helpful for me in thinking, preparing this. Mark, as he wrote his gospel, placed Jesus' healing of a woman within the healing of a father pleading for his daughter. So there's two healings together. The father comes to Jesus, there's a woman who's healed, and then the father finds out his daughter has died and Jesus heals her. It's a bit like a sandwich. Two pieces of bread with something in between. But if I go to a shop and I ask for a sandwich, I don't ask, can I have two pieces of bread, please, with some salad in between? I ask for a salad sandwich. Because what's in the middle is what's most important. That defines the sandwich. For Mark, what is in the middle is most important. It's the healing of the woman who was suffering for 12 years where we learn most. We certainly learn from the other, but that's where the focus is. But there are similarities between both. In both stories, a female is restored by Jesus. In both, the woman's illness and the age of the girl are 12 years. In both, Jesus is ridiculed. And in Jewish law, both were unclean. And so being near Jesus should have made Jesus unclean, but in both, instead, Jesus makes them clean. We're told that Jairus is a synagogue ruler. A synagogue ruler wasn't a paid role, but Jairus had oversight for things like the building, the, the synagogue building, the upkeep of the scrolls, to ensure that there were people to read and to preach and to pray. And so Jairus would have been respected in the community. And yet Jairus, with his daughter, seriously ill, comes to Jesus with no sense of arrogance, Rather, it comes with desperation. We read in verses 22 and 23. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came when he saw Jesus. He fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. We're not told what Jairus felt. But I want you for a minute to try and put yourself, we, we don't know what Jairus felt, but put yourself in Jairus' shoes. How would you feel? How would you feel in such a desperate 
situation. Jairus, in fact, shows some faith. He expects Jesus to come. He expects Jesus may be able to make a difference. And Jesus willingly goes with him. But then, just as Jesus willingly went with Jairus, Jesus willingly gives his time to somebody else. We're not told how Jairus felt, but imagine yourself in Jairus' shoes, longing for Jesus to come, minister to his daughter, and all of a sudden Jesus is preoccupied with somebody else. How would you be feeling? If I put myself in those shoes, I'd certainly be agitated. I think I'd be angry and I'd be incredibly anxious. Well, this woman seems to have had complicated gynecological issues, which the doctors couldn't treat. In fact, it had cost her all she had to try and get medical help, and instead she grew worse. Mark tells us in verses 27 28, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Her touch brought immediate healing. We read in verse 30, at once Jesus realised the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? We're not told what it means when Mark says Jesus was aware the power had gone out from him. It's not clear what that means. But Don Carson suggests an analogy It's a bit like a young dad who enjoys lifting weights, a weight on each hand. He lifts, he lifts, he lifts, and he enjoys doing it with his eyes closed. He's lifting these weights. All of a sudden, his young son, an infant, comes into the room and sees his dad lifting weights with his eyes closed and this little boy comes up and grabs hold of one of the weights and his dad just keeps lifting. Makes no difference to his dad and yet he knows something is different and he looks down and sees his son grabbing onto the weight and being lifted with him and his dad just keeps lifting and smiles. Jesus knew the power had gone from him. And he asked, who touched my clothes? Well, if you've seen pictures of Middle Eastern groups, there's people everywhere. And the disciples berate Jesus. How can you say, who touched me? There's people everywhere. But this woman, knowing she'd been healed falls at Jesus' feet and tells the truth. And Jesus said to him, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 
Remember, this woman, 12 years, had lived with a condition. A condition which meant that she was ostracised. She was an outsider in the community. For 12 years, she had lived with shame. For 12 years, she had lived a life of loneliness and exclusion. And by Jewish law, that she was even in the crowd meant that she could be condemned because her bleeding was unclean and it made those near her unclean. And yet instead of punishment, Jesus gives this precious acceptance and freedom and healing. But this miracle, like all Jesus' miracles, is not an end in itself. This is not just in an encapsulated form. Rather, this miracle, like all miracles, points to what God's kingdom is like. It points beyond itself. It points towards God's kingdom as a place that is whole. There is restoration. There is value. There is acceptance. While not Mark, if we were to read John's Gospel, we find that John never uses the word miracle. Rather, he used the word sign. Because a sign points beyond itself. The miracle is never about the miracle itself, but a miracle points beyond itself to who Jesus is and what God's kingdom is like. And when Jesus said to this woman, your faith has healed you, the word healed is literally, your faith has saved you. Salvation is not only about physical restoration, but it's about rescue from sin and its curse, its brokenness in our lives. Salvation is being made ready for heaven. The precious and beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus and what he has done, people who genuinely trust in him means that they are alive inwardly and nothing else needs to be done inwardly for them to be in heaven. They've been made complete inwardly. This healing nor any of Jesus' healings are isolated incidents Rather, Jesus' miracles are to be seen in the light of Jesus' death, where he took our sin and sickness on himself. So this woman's healing points to the larger healing for why Jesus came. Well, Mark returns to the outside of the sandwich. As Jairus is told that his daughter has died, and Jesus said in verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. If I was Jairus, the temptation would be in me to blame Jesus. Had you had come when you were going to come, maybe my daughter would be okay. But Jairus continues to trust despite the news that his daughter has died. And they arrive at the house to weeping and wailing, to which Jesus says in verse 39, the child is not dead but asleep. 
And in the room, this little girl lying on the bed, her parents, Peter, James and John with Jesus, Jesus took her hand and said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. What do we learn about Jesus through the eyes of women? I want to suggest three things. It's not about how good someone is, but it is about how good Jesus is. Interestingly, while there was a similarity between these two healings, Mark also brings contrasts. We know Jairus's name. We don't know the woman's name. We know Jairus had influence in the community. The woman was isolated and shamed. Jairus approached Jesus from the front while the woman comes from behind, didn't want to be seen. Jairus, in his desperation, is bold. The woman is timid. And yet, whose faith does Jesus commend? He says to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Or your faith has saved you, go in peace. Whereas Jairus needs his faith supported. Don't be afraid, just believe. Seeing Jesus through the eyes of women assures us we don't need to be well known, to be noticed and transformed by Jesus. Maybe it's tempting to think, I need to get my act together before God will even listen to me or look at me or help me. Or maybe we look at others who seem to have their lives together and think that Jesus would be much more inclined to help them than me because I know what I'm really like and their lives seem to have it all together. But Jesus destroys all those misconceptions through this woman. Secondly, it's not about the amount of faith, but where my faith is placed. I can be desperate, like Jairus, and ask Jesus for help, and yet still not sure that he'll answer. Not sure he'll do what he's promised. And yet we find through this woman that faith in Jesus, even when it's timid, even when it's insecure, is honoured, even if we can't yet see results. And if a frightened, disgraced and broken woman had her faith commended by Jesus then you and I can be confident in finding that Jesus is actually for us. It's not the faith of the respectable, but the faith faith of those who know their weakness 
and yet still come with quiet confidence, knowing that no one else can deal with our deepest need. And through this woman, we hear your faith has made you well. Go in peace, daughter. Just that one word, daughter, what does it mean? Family. Go in peace, you are family. I am for you. And, and thirdly, it's not ultimately about healing in this world, but salvation in this world and the next. It's not simply my faith that Jesus can heal, but as with Mark, seeing healing in the bigger picture of how Jesus saves through all he accomplished on the cross, which points to a new heaven and a new earth. It's not wrong to pray for physical and mental and emotional healing. In fact, as we live with lives that are in turmoil, lives that are troubled, as we live with a desperation of pain and agony, no one else knows what that's like. It's understandable that we want to pray to be out of that situation that we're in. It's so uncomfortable. It's understandable that people pray for healing. However, if I follow Jesus so that I may be healed in this life, the reality is I'm going to die one day. Even if I'm healed five times, I'm going to die one day. So we are called to live as citizens of heaven where true healing will be and where there is no more suffering and mourning and pain. But the reality is, it seems to me, that when most people pray for healing, the healing they expect to happen doesn't happen. So how do we live in the disappointment? How do we live in the discomfort of wanting something and it's not happening? What I want to say just briefly, the importance of being honest with God. Uh, you may not be like me, but sometimes it's easy to present an image to God where actually I feel something different. And the value of actually trusting God, but being trusting him to actually say what I'm feeling. There can be a vulnerability about that. And remember that God sees what we don't see. Like a, a good father who sees and knows what is happening and knows a perspective that their child can't see. We can't see what's happening. But God does, and so the importance of looking forward 
I want to read out a lament. And maybe just before I, I do that, as part of healing, when I go and visit people, I often visit people in hospitals, um, and not all the time, but certainly often, one of the things I thank God for is the Australian healthcare system. We have so much to be thankful for. We're not like so many other countries. The proficiency that we have, the skills, the tests, the scans, unending, and being part of Medicare, so much is covered. So much to be thankful for. But I want to finish with a lament. A lament was written by a guy called Daniel McGonchi from the United States, who was left paralysed after a hit and run in 2007. He said, God has not healed my affliction, but he has taught me the power of lamenting to him. Being honest about what's happening within us. It's a lengthy lament. So I just want to read the start and the end. O oh Lord my God, why do you wait to show up? I cried out to you when trouble struck. I asked for your restoration. I know that you heard me. I know that you answered. Yet nothing. Nothing of meaning happens again today. Infinitesimal changes dog my days. I'm hounded by the prayers of the fickle looking to me to prove their faith. Wearily I drag on, tiring of the waste, hating the horror, the pain, the suffering, the never-ending trial. The endless story drags on and on and on. And he goes on, and then towards the end. Which way is the path to life? Is it up an unclimbable mountain? Or on a path tread by all but me and the others who are broken like I? Surely it is impossible for me alone to find and impossible for me to transverse. Alone I am finished, dust left for the broom. Who am I that God shall remember me? My only salvation is that he should not forget his image or let his word be broken. He is faithful to us because he is faithful to himself. There is nothing I can do. In no way can I help. I sit in the ruins and wait and take comfort in those who lie in the ashes with me. But one day, by his promise, I will stand, restored as his message of hope is fulfilled. The Lord will turn this horror into a fading dream, and I will honour his name forever. It's natural and understandable to want to be healed. Yet God sees a different perspective to us and calls us to trust 
in that significant event of world history that's right at the centre of Jesus' death and resurrection and look to the healing or salvation at the cross. Before I was married, I grew up with a, uh, with a girl, um, just friends in the same youth group, and she married a guy, and they went as missionaries to what was called the Ivory Coast. Very, very intelligent she was, and he was a lovely, gracious man. But then while they were there, he started to have symptoms that they didn't know what it was, and they came back to Australia, and finally he was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. And slowly his life just ebbed away. Uh, at one point then, unable to talk, unable to walk, unable to use his hands, wheeled around in a wheelchair, and then not being able to get out of bed, and then not being able to breathe. At his funeral, uh, on the back cover of the service sheet, it had a picture of him. His name was Graham. And it was a picture of him in a tyre, a rubber tyre, swinging out over a, a, a creek uh, and letting go. And just this beautiful picture of joy of a former time in his life. And underneath were the words, running and leaping and praising God. But one day, by his promise, I will stand, restored as his message of hope is fulfilled. The Lord will turn this horror into a fading dream, and I will honour his name forever. Amen.